Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, and we'll read the first seven verses. Romans 17, uh, sorry, 13, first seven verses. Romans 13, listen, this is God's word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain." For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Well, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. We are in the middle of a sermon series looking more closely at Bible verses commonly misunderstood and therefore misapplied. And I'm calling this series, You Keep Using That Verse, I Do Not Think It Means What You Think It Means. And since the beginning of the pandemic, of course, Romans 13, 1-7 has been a kind of a wax nose for so many Christians and churches around this country, not only, but throughout the world. It has been twisted or distorted to support one side or another in so many of the debates over the government's role or its power, its authority in issuing laws, especially those that restricted your movement, and so on. And then, of course, to give you just a little more context, we have this Tuesday an election. And as you probably well know, the history of the church has been marked by Christians disagreeing about the nature of the relationship between the church and the state. The British theologian John Stott describes four basic models of this relationship through the ages of the church. There's the one where the state controls the church, or the other where the church controls the state. A third where the state favors the church and the church accommodates to the state in order to retain its favored status. And then finally, there's an imagined world where the church and the state each recognize and encourage each other's distinct God-given responsibilities in a spirit of constructive collaboration. Those are Stott's words, not mine. But he goes on to describe this in the terms of the principle Jesus sets out in Luke chapter 20. That we're to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, we're to render to God what is God's. Or as some of you may have have understood this more more, uh, recently, that there's a kind of 
uh, spheres of sovereignty. There are areas that are sometimes overlapping in some ways, but, but they're largely distinct. That is, there, is, there are areas where uh, we have a state or we have a church or we have a family, each with authority structures. But notice here when we get to Romans chapter 13, Paul is not that concerned, actually not concerned at all, with the model of church-state relationships. He's not speaking to one of the or another of the historical manifestations of, of that uh, relationship. Rather, his emphasis is on our relationship as Christians toward those in government or civil authorities. And so along the way, and because this is part of a series where we keep using that verse, I'm wanting this morning to address four myths or misperceptions I've commonly heard coming out of Romans 13, or at least even thinking about how Christians relate to their government. Four myths, and I use that word because they're myths that deserve to be busted, but they're myths that have actually power. They're not based in reality or truth, but they have power, particularly uh, in this country. And the first myth is this, Jesus is my king, so I don't have to submit to any other supposed authority. Jesus is my king, so I don't have to uh, submit myself to any other supposed authority. Well, we all want to acknowledge, don't we? Jesus Christ is Lord over the entire world, over everything made, don't we? We want to affirm the Lord Jesus Christ is king, has authority over all things. In fact, even when we begin to use the word authority or to explore what it means, we understand it to be something like the right or the warrant to govern, we recognize that it's very closely related to power, that is the ability to enforce or to govern. And to whom belongs all power? Who has all authority but God? In and of himself. It's part of who he is. It defines him. And God has the additional expression of his authority in his creation. By virtue of his creating all things out of nothing, by the word of his, we even say, by the word of his power in the space of six days. So we recognize that God has all power and authority. And it's not only his right to have all authority, but it belongs to him. It resides in him. It is who he is. And then we think back to Matthew 28, where we began this series, and where Jesus, with his death and resurrection, uh, just so recently in view, and as he's about to ascend to his father, he says to his disciples, all authority is given to me. And that's not because he's the eternal divine son of God. It's because he's the eternal divine son of man now in the flesh, by virtue of his death and resurrection, has the authority given to him that he might reign. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, Paul wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power 
toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where, or in what capacity, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and far above everything, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then just to complete the picture, he put all things under his feet. Clearly then a picture of subjection. He gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So yes, we want to acknowledge God as our supreme authority. And Jesus Christ as the one in whom that supreme authority is made manifest by virtue of his death and resurrection for the church. That is, he has a unique and special interest and care and concern for the church. But do notice it's the same Apostle Paul who, under the same inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, who also gives us Romans 13. There is such a thing as authority. It resides in God. It is made manifest in Christ. And Christ exercises his authority on earth through others to whom he gives authority the right to rule and to govern. So he gives parents authority to exercise over their children. He gives elders to rule the church. He gives civil authorities to govern in society. And so to say, Jesus is my king, and I don't need to recognize or I don't recognize civil authorities, undermines the very authority of Christ who rules over us through others. It's a little like trying to imagine a child saying to her parents, you can't tell me to do my homework or to clean my room or to go to bed. I don't answer to you. I answer to Jesus. That shouldn't get very far. It didn't in my household anyway. Well, here closely related is the second myth. The second myth. Our governing authorities derive their authority from us through our election of them and by our consent to be governed by them. Our governing authorities derive their authority from us through our election of them and by our consent to be governed by them. Now I know this is a common myth, deeply held conviction even. I hear it all the time in political commentary and across the political spectrum. This isn't, again, the, uh, this isn't the, um, uh, the part of one party or another. It's supposedly a bedrock of American democracy. Now, I also know, I happen to know, it's commonly held by Christians because I've heard it here. And I'll give you a little story. Very early in my ministry, before I became an American citizen, I led a congregational prayer in which I prayed through Romans 13. And I said something like, I don't remember exactly, so I'm, I'm trying to paraphrase from memory, but it was a long time ago. I said something like, Lord, let our governing authorities 
recognize the authority they have comes from you and that they are to answer to you for their stewardship of that authority. Let them honor this stewardship by restraining and punishing evil and by promoting and rewarding good. Not all that different from what I prayed this morning. I did not get very far out of this room that morning before a man, no longer with us, put his arm around me and said, Son, which I later understood to mean, you foolish young man and you dumb Canadian, let me teach you a civics lesson. And he said this, he said, here in America, you should know this, here in America, our government gets our authority, their authority from us. We vote them in, we put them into power, and if we don't like what they're doing, we vote them out, and we try someone else. We have the authority. Our politicians have no authority until we give it to them, and they stop having authority when we take it from them. Now, why is this a myth? Notice, right from the start, the premise, the ultimate uh, premise, a bedrock principle here is that authority resides in the individual. That I'm the source of authority. And you can see how this is not just an American impulse, but a deeply human one. It goes all the way back to the garden. Did God really say... Does God really have divine authority to set a set of, to, to give a set of rules that govern conduct in this little part of the world in which he's placed us? Or do I get to decide? How many times have you heard this said to you, or have you said this yourself, you can't tell me what to do? Or maybe in another a more specific context, you hear these words, my body, my choice. Again, you, can, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do is not just an American impulse. It's a deeply human one, a fallen human impulse. But for our purposes this morning, notice how this is applied in our relationship to civil authorities. See, the story goes, I have inherent rights. I am my own authority. And when I go to the ballot box, I choose to confer my authority on others. And along comes Paul and says, authorities derive their authority, the right to rule from God. And in case, he didn't, in case we didn't get it the first time, he actually says this seven times in this passage. Listen, verse 1, there is no authority except from God, by which he means both the principle of authority, but the more here, the person who holds it. Again in verse 1, those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. In verse 2, they've been appointed by God. Twice in verse 4, they are servants of God. Again in verse 4, when they exercise the power of the sword in punishing evil, they are God's avenger. Not that long before, he said, you know, when people do something wrong, let vengeance belong to God. Now here, 
civil authorities bear the sword as God's avenger. And finally, in verse 6, they are ministers of God. There's no authority except from God. Authorities exist, they've been instituted by God, appointed by God, servants of God, God's avenger and ministers of God. Notice Paul is not describing the possible ways people are recognized as having authority or coming into their positions of authority from our perspective. And there are several different paths to power, aren't there? One becomes king because he's the eldest son of the previous queen who was the eldest daughter of the king before her. And it's kings and queens as far back as anyone can remember. And we're not really sure why, but we still have this. Or another rules because he has the loyalty and the backing of the army behind him. Or another possesses gifts of rhetoric and charisma and has influenced the hearts and minds of his subjects through a campaign of ideology and propaganda. And still others rule because they have the most money or because they're most tapped into the family with the most money or maybe they're tapped into the people who don't have money but wish they did, that working class, and maybe that's where they find their support. Or maybe... He's in a position of power because he's a bully, and people are afraid of him. Or another is placed in a position of authority because she was democratically elected. There's all kinds of paths from our perspective. Paul's not concerned at all with how people are placed in their positions from our perspective. He's speaking of the present civil authorities. However they got there, they've been put there by God. I was so glad to find this quotation from the great theologian John Murray in his commentary in Romans. He writes, when he, that is Paul, says they are of God, verse 1, he means they derive their origin, right, and power from God. Here he goes on to say, it is expressly stated and excludes from the outset Every notion to the effect that authority in the state rests upon agreement on the part of the government or upon the consent of the governed. And then he goes on to say this, authority to govern and the subjection demanded of the governed reside wholly, entirely, in the fact of divine institution. And so here we go, the civil authorities, whether they recognize this or not, and so many of them don't, and we just accept that, and Paul does, but so many are our civil authorities, whether we recognize it or not, or whether we believe we empower them or not, they are God's authorized, instituted, empowered agents for promoting and rewarding good and for restraining and punishing evil. That's their job description. And if you didn't find John Murray persuasive, hear the words of Jesus. This is in the middle of his trial, which very much is a question, or at the heart of it is this question about authority. Who, under whose authority does Jesus think he is, that he does or says all that he has said? 
And he's being bandied about between the Jewish Sanhedrin uh, to the civil authorities, Herod, and to Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is clearly conflicted. He has the roar and the din of the clamor of the crowds in one ear, and he's got his, uh, the warning of his wife to have nothing to do with this righteous man, Jesus. And he's got this all set in the background of a strained relationship to Herod, another authority. And it's in the middle of that he says to Jesus, well, you're not going to answer me? You won't speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Remember Jesus' answer. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Again, our authorities don't always recognize this, and we sometimes forget this, that, uh, or we imagine somehow we place them there, and they imagine they've been placed there by us, and uh, no one seems to understand God is superintending all this and has given to a variety of different countries or political uh, realms of ways of recognizing that authority by putting those people in those positions. But... It comes from God. Well, so then here's the third myth, which follows closely on, uh, that is only those who are faithful to Scripture are appointed by God. The rest are illegitimate rulers. And the corollary there is Christians submit themselves to Christian authorities, or at least to those who are sympathetic to the Christian faith, and the rest we can safely ignore or even resist. Now, it's good to be reminded here, Paul's writing the letter of Romans to the people of Rome and to a people who knew nothing at all, not one thing at all, about a Christian government or a Christian country. In fact, the ruling authorities of the day from uh, the time of Jesus and his death and resurrection to the days of the early church, the ruling authorities of the day, those people with power, were largely antithetical to the claims of Christianity, and therefore mostly against Christians, even to the point, of course, of persecution, which, of course, you recognize, looking back, God uses as a way of spreading the gospel and actually affirming the gospel. But when Paul writes Romans 13, it's not as if he's informing us that we're only to be subject to Christian leaders or people who are sympathetic to Christians or people who are sympathetic to the party that seems most sympathetic to Christians, to those with whom we might agree philosophically or because they represent that party with which we find ourselves most in agreement. Paul is writing into a context where political authorities largely denied their authority comes from God. Or they denied at least that their authority comes from the true and living God. In some cases, they even believed they were God. God's command through Paul to be subject to governing authorities comes to us in the very arena of a broken, sinful, fallen world. So of all people, we recognize both the good gifts of God's common grace, that there is 
restraint to evil, that there are people who are working toward public civic good or who have a view to restraining or punishing evil. But we also live in the context where we of all people should understand sin and its pervasive, powerful effects. That wherever there is authority and power, there's a susceptibility to that authority and power being abused, misused, misapplied. And if you think about the job description, sometimes that authority gets abused or misapplied in one of two ways. Sometimes it's excessive force or use of the sword. Sometimes it's through a failure to recognize and to promote good. And so it's no surprise to us that there are uh, politicians and judges and rulers and police officers and parents and teachers and all kinds of people who have a variety of degrees or levels of authority in their spheres of influence who sometimes abuse that power, who sometimes misuse their authority, sometimes by being too severe, sometimes by being too lax. Paul is speaking into a world where the Christian authority, or where the authority is not nearly a Christian, quite opposed to it. Well, then this gives us to the final myth, which is this. If I, as a Christian, disagree with my authorities, my conscience is my guide. And see, this comes or gets spun out a little bit from verse 5. Paul writes, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And what happens then is there's this importation of everything else the New Testament tells us about uh, the guidance of our conscience to apply here to have some say, well, what Paul's saying is if there's a dispute here between my view of things and the government's view of things, then my conscience rises to the top. Paul's use then of the for sake of conscience means in this world that we submit ourselves to the authority unless our conscience forbids it. Well, that can't be right. At least not from this text. Because that would again make me the final authority, the final arbiter. I get to decide. What he means here is that our consciences are to be informed by the very thing he's teaching in Romans 13. That is, these authorities are placed in position of authority, have their authority, are given this authority by God, placed there uh, from God, and are answerable in that sense to God. And so our consciences are to be informed by this, that the authorities are put in position by God. So if we don't fear the sword, or if we don't fear God's wrath because we've done nothing wrong, so we don't fear the sword because we've not done anything wrong. We don't fear God's wrath because we've done nothing wrong. We should at least obey our consciences, which are now informed by Romans 13, to convince us that God has appointed and ordained and instituted and set these people in authority over us. There are other places to go in Scripture. Trust me, there are other places to go in Scripture where we find 
those moments where we need to speak to our authorities, where we need to point out to them that they're not promoting good, or when they are not, or when they're re- even when they reward evil instead of punish it. Or as Peter says in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. Or as Paul himself says, as he claims what is his right to appeal to a higher court. That appeal, by the way, didn't go well for him, but he at least made that claim. But here I want to say this, because Romans 13 doesn't actually anticipate all those ways where we want to have exceptions. There are, please understand me saying this, there are places where, as Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. But Romans 13 is rather absolute in its terms. And I think for a reason. You see, the point so often missed, even by Christians, when we want to protest or stand up to governments or when we want to speak or have our, uh, um, you know, post our things or walk around with signs or whatever we want to do, when we want to resist, more often than not, or at least let me ask it this way, if you're inclined to do that, ask yourself, am I more concerned about a violation of my perceived rights or am I more concerned about my obligation to honor the Lord who has placed these in authority over me? You see, we sometimes can align ourselves in our protests with people who have no relationship to God, who have no understanding of the supremacy of Christ. And we imagine we're in this common cause with them when we're not because their ultimate God is themselves. And we're wanting to say as Christians, our ultimate authority is Jesus Christ. We need to figure this out. And sometimes this is really hard to figure out. I grant you. Again, in Paul's more absolute terms in Romans 13 that are nuanced in other places to be sure, he leaves us with some very clear commands at the end of this passage. We are to subject ourselves to governing authorities, verse 1. We're not to resist them. We're to have no fear if we do good. We're to be afraid if we do evil. But then notice all these things. We're to pay taxes. Why? Because promoting good and punishing evil costs money. They're ministers of God, and we resource them in in their work as ministers of God, again, even if they're unaware of it, but we resource them. We give them what they need to do that work. We're to give taxes and revenue, respect and honor. And then you start to see how there's room for all kinds of vigorous and interesting debates here. What does it mean to do good? Well, depending on uh, your view of the world and how government should do good, It might mean, as many of you probably wish, we had less government doing less business because they usually botch it up, we think. But if you understand that some people want more government to do more good and have more social programs, and then you start to say, well, maybe that's not good, but maybe some of it is. And so you see there's all kinds of area to disagree there. So you might wish our government were smaller or larger, that it did less or more, that it provided more programs or fewer. But we need to all agree that there are things our government does 
for mutual good. There are things we want them to do in the restraint and the punishment of evil. That it costs money to do these things. And at the end of it all, we come to this. Paul's concerned in the book of Romans to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to think about our spiritual worship, not to be conformed to this world, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He wants us to live as Christians. And in one small part, here in these opening verses of Romans 13, he's saying, you can live as Christians by relating with understanding to those in authority over you. Most of all, you recognize God has placed them there. You might not like them all, you might not agree with them all, but their authority comes from God. They'll need to answer for that, but we are called to pray for them, to honor them, to provide revenue for them, and to respect them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is one way we live as disciples of Jesus. That one way we honor Christ is by submitting to the authorities who's placed over us. Lord, we recognize this is not easy to do. We recognize for uh, all of us our deep impulse to be our own authority, our resistance to anyone telling us what to do or when to do it or how. Lord, give us wisdom to understand and to know when best to speak out or to speak up or to point out that what those in authority are doing is contrary to your word, that they are demanding of us something that is in violation of your word. Lord, grant us wisdom to know when that is and to what extent and how we best pursue justice. Thank you for a very complicated, complex system we have in this country that allows us to speak out or to appeal to judicial authorities or to uh, return to another election. Lord, we're grateful for so many of the ways we can express ourselves. We're grateful especially that as a church we have been able to worship and to witness with freedom. That to such an extent, our government has promoted this part of good for us for a long time. Lord, may it continue, and may we make faithful use of the opportunities you give us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen.